Welcome to Between the Bylines, a weekly podcast from the Boston University News Service where we unpack must-read stories from the past week through the lens of student journalism. Hear how the story was made from the writers and editors who made it. It's October 7th, 2019. I'm Hannah Harn. So this week we are in the studio with Elias Miller, who reported on CNN correspondent Jim Acosta's recent visit to the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, so, hi, Elias. Thank you so much for joining us hi, today. I'm very glad to be here. Um, we're so glad to have you. So, why don't you just kick it off? Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. So, I'm Elias. I'm a junior here at Com, and I'm mostly involved with BUTV10 and not so much with print, mm-hmm. which is, it's been very interesting putting in this story and seeing it get edited, by the way. B- the BU News Service does have excellent editors. Oh, who... <laughs> thank you so much. Wow. Um, yeah, my story was not the way it looked before uh, it got through the final stages, and I'm very happy with how it looks now. Yeah. So, yeah, I had known about the Harvard Kennedy School to be a great place where many speakers go, whether they're politicians or uh, scientists or, in this case, journalists and authors. And the with the forums, they have great moderators as well as um, audience members who go up and ask questions. So the John F. Kennedy Jr. forums is, are always a great place to get some insight on mm-hmm. whatever it is the speakers are speaking about that day. So what specifically about this event at the Harvard Kennedy School kind of drew you in a little bit? So as a journalist, I'm very interested in seeing what uh, Jim Acosta had to say about covering the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. It's basically a talking point at this point, but I think it is very much true that Covering Trump has been different than covering past administrations or past campaigns. And Jim Acosta is someone who has covered, um, he, he mentioned he's covered four presidential campaigns, a bunch of state and city council elections campaigns. And he said numerous times, this is different, this is unique, and I've never seen this before. And so it was very interesting to hear what he had to say about how was campaign coverage beforehand? How was being a White House correspondent beforehand? And how is it different now? And we can sort of try to guess, is this a larger trend that we're going to see? Will this end once Trump leaves office in 2020 or 2024? Mm-hmm. Or is this is this animosity we're seeing toward journalists, is it going to be reset? Is it going to grow? And that those are questions that I have to this day. Yeah. Did you get any answers? I think, I mean, the answers will come from time. Mm-hmm. Um, what we did get from this speech, from this forum, is a lot of insight into exactly how this animosity is translated into real-life terms. I mean, Jim Acosta mentioned that he, he had, like, a, a death threat every week on Twitter from trolls, or I guess trolls are kind of demeaning to talk about people who are actually wishing ill mm-hmm. will on him. Yeah. But... um. That's not, as sad as it is to say, that that's not uncommon for journalists to get, especially on-air uh, journalists to get. But when that is translated into actual, you see that in real life. So mm-hmm. Jim Acosta, when he went to Trump rallies, talked about all the different um, mobs that would form around CNN. And even as Trump was speaking, he was egging mobs on, and they would all turn towards CNN and shout, CNN sucks or fake news or... yeah. And sometimes that would turn into violence. Yeah. And mainly one of the um, 
he mentioned one of the people who was trolling him on Twitter, sending him death threats and pictures of decapitated goat heads. That person, I don't know if we should name him or like the uh, standards. But yeah, we can just leave him leave him nameless. Right. So that person, I, I name it in an article, but I'm not going to name yeah. him now. That person actually ended up sending pipe bombs to yeah. many Democratic, uh, uh, high-profile Democratic politicians. So that's the very worrying thing is it's not just words on the Internet anymore. It can yeah. turn into real-life violence. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you quote Acosta on in the article that really interested me was the idea of the press cage Mm -hmm. um, in terms of political reporting. Tell me a little bit more about kind of how he described this idea of the press cage and kind of what your experience has been maybe with that. Right. In any type of event, you would have a number of press risers at the back where as you're having a rally, you have the audience between in the middle and the stage. You're facing the stage directly and in the back, you have all the journalists and their cameras uh, reporting and capturing the event. The notion of press cage brings up this idea that you're sort of caged in into this very vulnerable area if y- this audience were to suddenly turn on you. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that this has necessarily happened to the extent where you would imagine a mob running over to CNN and trying to um, attack them as a uniform body. He, he does say that it's not at all uniform. They're just some supporters who try to go at it in violent terms with CNN. But that is worrisome. If you are, I I don't think journalists should get used to the idea that if you're covering a rally, you are risking your life or risking your livelihood. Mm -hmm. But if you are in a rally and those types of anti-journalist sentiments um, that journalists are less than human or deserve attack, um, those can very quickly turn into um, very unbecoming places for journalists to report. So let's let's get a little bit more, you know, happy for a second. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, you're good. No, but this is important. I mean, yeah. it is an important conversation to have. And, you know, as student reporters, I think these are a lot of times things that we're kind of thrown into blindly. You know, they're not things that I think, I mean, I at least when I started at Com and started studying journalism, I wasn't really ready in a lot of ways for a lot of the negative response that I've received from people over the course of my reporting. I think a lot of times that's not something we're prepared for. Mm-hmm. And I think professors can be very idealistic. You know, they're very like, oh, you're just going to go out and report. And I think that sometimes it's easy to forget. And also as a student journalist, I think, you know, we deal with a lot of people who are like, I'm not going to talk to a kid, mm-hmm. you know, so... That's been some of my experience, but um, I mean, it is an important conversation to have. Um, so, you know, Acosta is obviously a highly politicized reporter. We've talked about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. But what do you think is a takeaway either from him or just from your own experience reporting on this event about how to interact with press who are in a, like, you know, members of the press who are in a spotlight as another member of the press? How to cover, uh, uh, you know, um, how, yeah, maybe how to cover that or how to, you know, if you're given the opportunity, how to interact with them and how to maybe broach subjects. I see. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, um, so one of the things we're taught in our classes is journalists should never be the story. Mm -hmm. But every now and then, unfortunately, journalists become part of the story. And I don't think that, I mean, Jim Acosta, some people think he wants to be part of the story. Some people don't. I don't know his intent or anything. I don't know her personally. But I think that he was thrust in a position where he unfortunately became the topic of 
the um, Trump press corps removing his credentials. Mm -hmm. And that was something that CNN had to cover. And they were, even though they were a party in that lawsuit, I think that is um, unfortunately one of those times when you need to sort of, I don't know, have two um, personalities, two characteristics where you're covering the story as at the same time being part of it. But mm -hmm. I think as journalists uh, covering that story, even if another journalist isn't implicated, that's just another story. Yeah. Um, there are definitely a lot of things to talk about when it came to that whole um, that whole event, which I'm sure we'll see more of that, I think. Politicians, whether they say publicly or privately, a lot mm -hmm. of them are either fearful or distrusting of the press. I would say distrusting more than fearful. Yeah. They like good coverage, and the news media doesn't always bring good coverage mm -hmm. because they sometimes they can't, and it's also not their job to make politicians look good. That's yeah. why they have PR people. Mm -hmm. But it used to be um, politicians, elected officials, even when they spoke privately about journalists, they didn't necessarily attack them in a public pr platform like we're yeah. seeing today. And I think it was sort of viewed as... If an elected official tried that, then the public would turn around and completely uh, disavow them, and they would see protests on their hands. Yeah, We're seeing some of that. I don't know to what extent we're seeing that right now, even though administrations, not only in the United States, I mean, I'm, I'm also French, so I see this in France as well. You have a number of candidates and politicians who are very publicly berating journalists, even when they don't necessarily deserve it. Yeah. And... Sometimes they're doing pretty well for themselves anyway. Mm -hmm. Great. So you mentioned earlier that you did a lot. Of, you do a lot of work with BUTV10, so you do a lot of work in TV journalism as well, I mm -hmm. assume. What's it like? What's the transition been like from, you know, one medium to another? Actually, I was speaking to my uh, professor earlier uh, a few days ago. It's I find it easier to do TV journalism mm -hmm. than print journalism. This is very... I, I should say maybe characteristic or oversimplistic, mm -hmm. but if you're co if you're putting together a news package, you can sort of let the people you're interviewing make the story themselves. Yeah. And every now and then you jump in and say, "Oh, uh, person A thinks mm -hmm. that the protests are good." I mean, I'm person A. I think the protests are good. And then, yeah. But person B disagrees. I'm person B. I disagree. Yeah. In print journalism, you, you need to put together nut graphs and all those sorts of leads and tags and all this context, which I, I've always had respect for print journalism. I have a newfound respect yeah. for print journalists. It's a lot, a lot harder than it seems. Mm -hmm. um, but the end quality is also, I think, very good. Great. Do you plan on doing more print in the future, or? I would like to stick to broadcast audiovisual, mm -hmm. but it's, I mean, print journalism needs to stay. I mean, this is a broader topic. But I obviously think that local journalism, print journalism, needs to be supported more mm -hmm. than it is today yeah. uh, by individuals. What about local TV journalism? Because there are a lot yeah. of you know small towns that have their own um, kind of TV news sources or radio news sources. And I think a lot of times the focus is just, you know, in my personal experience, I see a lot of focus on like the small town print. And obviously small town print is super important. Um, but I think also those small town TV, you know, news broadcasts or radio broadcasts are just as important. For a lot of reasons, I mean, I think people can they can listen to the radio while they're driving. You can't read a newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, you shouldn't. You you should. I would <laughs> I would advise against it. And that's just that's just me. 
So how do you think, you know, these small town or maybe not necessarily small town, but local sources for news can gain that support? How do you think they can go forward and maintain their support and maybe get more? Gain their support? I'm not exactly sure. I, I would say that it is uh, significantly a, a problem, mm-hmm. especially in the smaller markets that we're seeing in smaller TV markets where there are fewer um, people in their audience demographics. We're seeing that even if a market has several channels, a lot of these channels can be owned by like three companies. Mm-hmm. Or that a lot of uh, these um, huge groups who own many different TV channels, they s- focus on local programming, but a lot of programming they're actually seeing is transposed from one TV channel to another. Mm-hmm. And so I, I remember like Conan O'Brien had this sketch where um, several TV news anchors were reading from the same script. And that's kind of what you're seeing. Even if you're watching local TV, like the scripts can be written in one central agency and sent out throughout all these affiliates. Mm-hmm. Or you could have a TV show that's shot in Washington and they can yeah. uh, dis- uh, display that in their all, all their TV channels. Um, so I think there is more to be done for local TV. I know it's... I also work a lot with... Um, people learning English as a second language in Mm -hmm. Chelsea, Massachusetts. And for those types of people, sometimes newspapers aren't as um, available to them as TV is because they they can understand someone speaking Mm -hmm. on the radio or on TV. They can't necessarily read a newspaper. So I think there is definitely something to be done about local TV, local radio, and amplifying that so that it's not... We have a lot of it. It needs to be, in my opinion, of a better quality yeah. and actually focused on what people need to know about, mm-hmm. I, I would say. Great. So tell me about some of the, you know, I, I, I think covering forums can be very difficult because mm-hmm. um, a lot of times, you know, the press are kind of relegated to the back or to a specific section and it's kind of hard to move around and get different angles literally and, you know, figuratively. What were some things that, you know, you learned about covering forums from a print perspective at this event? I would say that um, for anyone who's interested in covering forums, the Harvard Kennedy School is probably one of the best places to do it. Mm -hmm. If you go, it it looks big on their live stream and their video, but if if you go there, it's actually very compact and condensed. And whether it be the the, the speakers or the moderator or the audience members, I I feel like it's one of the places where people are more accessible to you, that you can just walk up or set up your tripod or get your video equipment, uh, audio equipment together and just speak to mm-hmm. people. We were speaking a minute about being a student reporter, and it, it has bad, um, it has disadvantages and advantages, I think. It's definitely a double-edged sword. Um, people are less likely to maybe respect you if you're a student journalist. Yeah. But I found people can also, some people can also be more willing to speak to you, especially if they maybe underestimate you or yeah. think that no one's going to see this i can say whatever i mm-hmm. want so it, it, it's all about you know picking the pros from the cons and yeah sometimes it's i mean jim acosta i, I didn't get him on the record because he had to get the, to the airport but mm-hmm. a lot of these people are like oh you're a student journalist of course yeah i remember when i was doing that I, i'm going to speak to you yeah that's something that you know you should cash in if you're a student reporter yeah what are some things that you would do different next time at your next form at the harvard kennedy school a lot of skill comes from repetition, right? Mm-hmm. You go through trial and error and you do it again and again. And um, 
I think if it's any type of recurring form, you want to get to know the people there. And so they, they recognize you and you can more easily access the the speakers and the moderators and anyone who's there and know the facilities better, mm-hmm. know where all the different equipment is, where the best place is for you to either um, stand by while the form is going on or know how best to, in a sense, ambush the speakers before they leave. Yeah. Not that that's necessarily the best word we want to use, but yeah. in a liberal sense, uh, ambush. I think that probably um, that is a good general rule to apply is that mm-hmm. every time you go to an event, you're picking up intelligence for that next time, next time you go. Yeah. What advice do you think Acosta gave to any uh, student reporters he may or may not have known about in the audience? If anything, I think he boosted up the journalist base. Mm-hmm. I think in a very real sense, like you, you spoke about journalism professors being maybe idealistic yeah. about how journalists are viewed. Jim Acosta's, I mean, he's been through it. He knows that a lot of people in a very literal sense hate journalists. Yeah. And a lot of people want to also in a literal sense hurt journalists. And saying that and him, someone asked him, I think the moderator asked him, I mean, you're going through all of this. Is it worth it to do your job? Like she said, is it worth it? And he said, absolutely, it is. I mean, this is what I want to do. And in the United States, we can still very much do that. We still have the Mm -hmm. freedom to go out pretty much anywhere, not anywhere, but most places and do our jobs with limited uh, intervention, limited regulation. I think that's maybe the best thing that any student journalist in the audience, apart from me, got is that, yeah, I mean, you're going to go through awful times. You're going to go through um, terrible uh, interactions with people who mean you harm. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the time, I mean, Jim Acosta is still, is still doing it to this day, and he still wants to continue. Yeah. And I think that's a great real-life uh, model for a lot of journalists to have. Yeah, You, you can just keep going. Yeah. That's... So I think to wrap up a little bit, mm-hmm. Going forward, as as student journalists, how do you think... And so I'm curious, I guess I'm curious a little bit about how we as student journalists... You know, I, spe- I think sometimes as a student, it's easy to feel like you're not making much of a difference, and you're just like, I'm just a kid. Like, the nobody outside be you, you know, maybe reads my stuff. Or um, I know there's only one person who listens to my radio show, and it's definitely my mom, you know, kind of stuff like that. I mean, you know, what advice would you give other student reporters to keep them engaged with what they're doing, whether it's something super highly politicizing and they're, you know, breaking a huge story on, you know, a city council vote, but, or, you know, just kind of, you know, something casual that they're doing for a class. How do you think we can um, maintain that spirit of the work? Well, I think it's a good thing to recognize that student journalists do break stories. Mm-hmm. And that when you do, that puts you in the same uh, playing field as every other journalist who's, I guess you would say, experienced or in the field. Yeah. So I think, Student journalists, there's very little um, difference in what they can achieve from general reporters. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing to to keep in mind is that even if you feel like no one's reading your stuff or listening to your stuff or watching your stuff, in my case with BUTV10, you're playing in the real world. Your, your stuff, whether you feel good about it or bad about it, it's still going out there and it has the potential to reach the world mm-hmm. through the internet. And in some cases, you know, it might. Yeah. And even if, it, even if it doesn't, I would say it's not practice, it's experience that you're gaining. A, an event that you're covering is never time lost. Yeah. 
you learn so much from every next thing you you can say oh i didn't ask this question well or i should work on you know how i present myself as a student reporter that's always stuff that you can accumulate um throughout your field work and eventually become the reporter that you aspire to be if you're a student reporter there's no reason to stay in a classroom you need to get out there yeah and it's never time lost great well Elias, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having um, me. I really loved getting to chat with you, and I hope we get to have you back soon. Let's do it. So, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in, and that is it for this week's episode of Between the Bylines. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next week. For the full version of Elias's story, visit bunewsservice.com slash podcast and click on today's episode. And don't forget to join us at our pitch meeting on Wednesday at 5.30 in Com B29. Uh, we'd also like to thank... Elias, just for joining us again, as well as our production team. This week's episode of Between the Bylines was produced by me, Hannah Harn. And be sure to check out our latest episode of Friday Five, where we fill you in on the latest news from Boston and beyond. Visit us online at bunewservice.com slash podcast for more information.